The next investigator I chatted with was Dr. Serge Verstavsek, who began by reviewing papers in myelofibrosis, beginning with a study he presented at ASH, Abstract 278, with follow-up data of the so-called Comfort One trial, first reported at the last ASCO meeting, evaluating the JAK-1-2 inhibitor ruxolitinib. The Comfort One study was the first study in development of ruxolitinib, a JAK-1 and JAK-2 inhibitor, in comparing it to a placebo. This was one of the phase three studies that led to a recent approval of ruxolitinib as a therapy for patients with myelofibrosis in the United States. This study was done through a collaborative effort of about 90 centers through United States, Canada, and Australia. About 150 patients were randomized to ruxolitinib and the same number to placebo. What we have seen is that a great majority of the patients exposed to ruxolitinib experience significant decrease in the volume of spleen, which is one of the major problems with this disease. And likewise, a great majority of the patients improved myelofibrosis-related symptoms, which is very clinically relevant endpoint, and it was a secondary endpoint for development of this medication. Could I just ask, what do we know right now about the duration of these responses, particularly with the updated data? We have looked at the primary endpoint responses at the 24 weeks of randomization, and at that point in time, there was this difference between the responses in the spleen and the symptoms versus the worsening, of course, on the placebo arm. We have a duration of about 51 weeks, an average follow-up of the patients on the two arms, so it's not too long. However, on the companion study, a longer-term follow-up of the patients exposed to ruxolitinib in a phase 1-2 study focused on 107 patients that were treated at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, and that study initiated in the summer of 2007. We have evidence that after an average of follow-up of about three years, 50% of the patients are still enjoying the benefit of the drug. So far, the maintenance of a therapy on the ruxolitinib arm on the Comfort One study mirrors that what we have seen in the Phase One Two study and MD Anderson Cancer Center in the past. So I would expect that we would be talking in the future about half of the patients, as mentioned, being still on the therapy after three years on average. The benefits that we see are durable because what the JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor does is controls the underlying abnormality in this disease. Everybody with myelofibrosis has dysregulated JAK-STAT pathway for one reason or the other. Half of the patients, as you know, have a mutation in a JAK2 enzyme. This is a tyrosine kinase. We are talking about JAK2V617F mutation. But up to now, we know about additional, many additional abnormalities, genetic mutations in myelofibrosis. At last count, to my knowledge, we are at the number 16. 16 different mutations being present in patients with myelofibrosis, and many have multiple ones, leading to underlying dysregulated JAK-STAT pathway. That's why this drug is very beneficial clinically by controlling signs and symptoms of the disease, and very important for everyday practice. It is active in patients with JAK-2 mutation and without JAK-2 mutation, and one does not need to test the patient for the presence of the JAK-2 mutation to expose the patients to aruxolitinib. It works the same way in patients across the board, no difference at all. You don't even need to test the what is called JAK2 allele burden. 
the quantitative PCR to see whether there is any decrease in the number of cells that have ejective mutation because it's not clinically relevant. Have there been any patients who've been in remission and then had the JAK2 inhibitor or ruxolitinib discontinued? Yes, very good point. As a part of the presentation on the longer follow-up on COMFORT-1 study, we also looked at the issue of what happens when the therapy is interrupted or stopped. As I said, everybody benefits to the same extent, regardless of the subgroup of the patients with different characteristics. And what happens if you stop the therapy for one reason or the other, and there were about 50 patients that experienced that, the symptoms that are very well controlled with ruxolitinib come back to a baseline within about 7 to 10 days. There is no harm in stopping the therapy that patients would be harmed from withdrawal in terms of having a rebound to a worse state than they were before, but the symptoms do come back to a baseline within 7 to 10 days. So we usually suggest that the therapy be tapered off rather than interrupted cold turkey. This may seem like a naive question, but do we know whether or not the JAK2 inhibitors like rexolitinib actually slow down the pathogenic process, or do they maybe affect cytokines and secondary outcomes of the tumor, or both? For now, I would say that we have a good evidence that actually slows down the progression of the disease rather than affecting really the biology of disease itself. From prior studies, we know that this is anti-inflammatory medication because it does decrease multiple inflammatory cytokines, proteins in blood that we know of contribute to symptomatology of the disease, being a JAK1 and JAK2 inhibitors, all these cytokines that signal through these tyrosine kinases normalize within a month. Also inhibiting the JAK2, it provides anti-proliferative effect. So a combination of the anti-inflammatory and anti-proliferative effect benefits the patients. That's why when you stop the drug, symptoms come back within a week because everything goes back to unregulated state. And knowing that the patients actually die from the progression of the disease. Remember that malfibrosis is the disease that does shorten the life expectancy. Average life expectancy is five to seven years. Patients, by and large, die from progression of the malfibrosis, not from transformation to acute leukemia. Only about 15 to 20 percent would transform to acute leukemia. What we know is that the causes of death in malfibrosis are related to progression of the big spleen, progression of big liver, portal hypertension cardiac output goes up, cardiac failure, lung failure because of a hypertension in the system of the circulation of the lungs. We see that we minimize these problems. People gain weight, they walk more, the symptoms and signs by and large get improved. And we have very good evidence now in a COMFORT-1 study, which is prospective randomized placebo-controlled study that patients actually live longer because of better control of signs and symptoms. Interestingly, same was seen in the companion study that I mentioned already, longer-term follow-up of the patients exposed to ruxolitinib in a phase 1 to study at MD Anderson. In matched control historical groups, and the match was 3 to 1, so three controls for one patient on the phase 1 to study with ruxolitinib, we also witnessed the same result. Patients live longer. So you have prospective and retrospective analysis showing that for advanced patients, Ruxolitinib does matter, not just improving the signs and symptoms, but also making people live longer. So in addition to those two presentations that you gave that you just referred to, there was also some data presented from the so-called COMFORT-2 trial 
the sort of, I guess, companion parallel study that occurred in Europe. And there was also another presentation on ruxolitinib in terms of health-related quality of life. Anything there or anything else at ASH in terms of ruxolitinib that you think are important for people to know about? Comfort 2 study is actually a very important study because it was a randomized open-label study in about 80 centers throughout Europe, as you mentioned, comparing the ruxolitinib to best available therapy. So anything that the doctor wanted to give to the patients, and majority of the patients were given hydroxyurea, which is a standard usual first-line therapy, but there were an array of other therapies given, and patients may have been exposed to several during the conduct of the study. And interestingly, we have seen the same type of results as we have reported in Comfort 1. Comparing ruxolitinib to best available therapy, huge difference in the improvement of the spleen and improvement in the symptoms. Best available therapy did not provide any benefit, zero. It was quite surprising. I was surprised myself because we utilize these medications all the time. Well, the other thing I noticed in, I think, both of those presentations was that in the control arm, if you look at the waterfall plot, in the treated arm, they're all getting better. But actually, it's amazing because in the other arms, they're all getting worse. I mean, that was the way I looked at it. Yeah, I mean, I was stunned by the fact that if you take the effort to look at the control arms in Comfort 1 and control in Comfort 2, and one is placebo and the other one is best available therapy, it's like the same. Like we are not providing any benefit to the patients with best available therapy. But it's also, it's not like they're just sort of being stable. They're deteriorating, it looks like to me. Yeah, I think it's very good evidence that what we have been doing for the patients really did not have a value, and that is why... We did not have any medication approved so far. Really, nothing works. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, sometimes it's one thing to look at the data, but for docs in practice who haven't utilized this approach, a lot of times it's helpful to get sort of a more global feeling. When you start a patient right now, for example, on ruxolitinib, who's, let's say, moderately or highly symptomatic, what do you tell them to expect? Do you tell them, you know, it's very likely you're going to start feeling better? Yes, indeed. Patients usually feel better within two to four weeks. And the spleen may respond to the therapy within the same time period. In fact, the benefit of the therapies are seen within two or three months. What you get within two or three months is what you will achieve with this therapy. It is important to understand that this is a therapy for patients that have big organs and or symptoms. We, in fact, did treat patients without big spleens. And they do get better. They walk more, they eat more, they gain weight. The symptoms go away. Symptomatic improvement is not necessarily tied to a shrinkage of the spleen. In fact, there is no correlation here between the symptomatic improvement and the degree of a spleen improvement. Of course, patients that have a huge spleen and this goes away have a little bit better improvement. But we are talking about the general constitutional symptoms that are improved. Weakness, fatigue, bone aches and pains, itching, sweating. These are the symptoms that are very well controlled with the therapy. In addition, it is important to realize that for symptomatic improvement, a low dose of therapy is as good as a higher dose. The spleen, however, has a tendency to respond better to higher dose. So there is a dose response for spleen shrinkage, but there is no real dose response for symptom improvement. 10 milligrams twice a day is as good in symptom improvement as 25 milligrams twice a day. Can you talk a little bit more about what we know about the toxicity profile of ruxolitinib and other emerging JAK2 inhibitors? Definitely. We talked a little bit about withdrawal, and we did not see really withdrawal effect of uh, 
stopping ruxolitinib, the symptoms come back to the baseline. In comparison to placebo, on ruxolitinib arm, there were three serious adverse events and there were three serious events on the placebo, and that's important to know. So there was no harm. What are the most common side effects of ruxolitinib? It is suppression of the blood cell count. By default, because this is targeted agents for the JAK2, which is important for hematopoiesis, for the blood cell growth, you would expect on-target toxicity. So DLT in phase 1 to study was thrombocytopenia, low platelets, and you see anemia as well developing on a higher dose. So about a quarter of the patients in this COMFORT-1 study had a treatment emergent anemia or thrombocytopenia more than on the placebo arm. So about a quarter of the patients required dose modification for myelosuppression. Myelosuppression was not the cause for stopping the therapy. Only one patient stopped for anemia and thrombocytopenia on each arm. So one needs to understand that myelosuppression is possible and follow-up with the blood cell count is mandatory during first couple of months, maybe weekly or every other week, adjusting the dose if there is any myelosuppression but optimizing the dose for the benefit of the patient is still the priority. Not to be shy of improving the dose if there is no toxicity to get the best out of the drug in terms of controlling the signs and symptoms. There are no other real concerns with droclinitin long term. We didn't see any other major problems. With some other drugs like SB1518 or CEP701, another JAK2 inhibitor studied a couple of years ago, we did see some degree of nausea vomiting in diarrhea, usually grade 1, grade 2, relatively easy to manage, usually not resulting in patients stopping the drug, but something to realize as a possibility with some of the JAK2 inhibitors. Maybe you want to comment on abstract 280, looking at polycythemia vera and use of interferon. Interferon has traditionally been used occasionally in patients with earlier stages of myeloproliferative neoplasms, essential thrombocytemia and polycythemia vera, as an agent that would be useful in patients that are not really doing well on a frontline therapy with hydroxyurea or anagolite in ET. Interferon, however, as you know, traditionally has also been associated with a number of toxicities, these are usually low-grade but chronic toxicities related to myelosuppression or uh, loss of hair or thyroid problems or depression and so on. So not too many patients can tolerate the therapy, which is given traditionally three or five times a week under the skin. Although the therapy is not leukomogenic, it does not cause any increased risk of a transformation to acute leukemia, not too many patients were exposed to it. Now we have a new preparation of interferon, so-called pegylated interferons, and in particular pegylated interferon alpha-2A, which is given under the skin once a week. And at a very low dose of 45 or 90 microns per week, and it's given in a fixed dose, it has been reported already in a couple of papers that is very effective therapy for patients with ET and PV. It normalizes the count in about 80 to 90% of the patients, and now with this report, we have evidence that after an average follow-up of six and a half years, many patients, again, 90% of the patients have continuous hematological complete response, and some patients that were even taken off the therapy for purpose of eliminating therapy in patients who have excellent response. So therapy was stopped not because of toxicity, but because the physician and the patient decided not to take it anymore because of its efficacy, it did normalize the count. 
we have now evidence that the bone marrow in these patients can improve, that molecular response is evident in terms of eliminating clone with the JAK2 mutation. And this is quite valuable because we have first evidence with any agent in ETNPV that we can perhaps eliminate disease. This is not possible with the JAK2 inhibitors. Remember, JAK2 inhibitors are not specific for the mutation. They just control the signs and symptoms. There is no real elimination of the disease. Here, this results with peglet interferon, even after stopping the therapy, lead to a conclusion that this biological agent can lead to a long-term molecular and histological remissions. Do you want to comment on 282, looking at pacritinib? Pacritinib is the JAK2 inhibitor we have mentioned as another new JAK2 inhibitor among 10 that are being developed. This agent is a little bit different. It is not inhibiting JAK1. There is no anti-inflammatory effect. However, it does decrease the spleen and improve quality of life in a good number of patients. Perhaps it's not as active as the JAK1, JAK2 inhibitors like ruxolitinib. The benefit of this drug is seen primarily in patients with a low blood cell count. Because ruxolitinib has a potential to decrease the platelets and red blood cell count, some investigators wondered what is its real utility in these patients that start the therapy with very low count. Pacritinib may offer a solution because those limiting toxicity with this agent is GI toxicity. It does cause some nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. There is no malosuppression, so it was as effective in patients with very low platelets, for example, as in patients with good platelets. Hopefully, these agents might be developed, particularly for patients that start with a low blood cell count. Okay, let's talk a little bit about CML, beginning with paper 783, coming off a German trial. So this is a very interesting abstract that looked at the outcome of patients treated in Germany on a large randomized study with an average follow-up close to five years. That was a study including about 1,300 patients where imatinib was the backbone of all four arms that were employed in the study. And what further follow-up showed that there is a substantial, significant difference in the outcome of the patients if you only look at their response after three months of therapy. Very early in this therapy, you can already define the groups of patients that will do well and not as well. So after three months of imatinib treatment, we can predict the risk of disease progression and death in newly diagnosed chronic myeloidemia patients based on their molecular and cytogenetic response, particular molecular response. We are talking about quantitative PCR. If there is a quantitative PCR of 1% or less positivity, these patients will have excellent outcome. No need to worry about those. If, on the other hand, the qPCR shows more than 10% positive result, still, after three months of therapy, these patients tend not to do as well. I mean, the results are still very good, but we are talking about overall success long-term of 80% or less. This brings a good point for further drug development. Shall we determine who gets something else rather quickly in terms of looking at their results after three months of imatinib, which is a standard first-line therapy? This finding has already led to clinical studies where early institution of a different TKI has been attempted to further improve the results of patients with chronic myeloid leukemia and chronic phase. This is the next abstract that I would like to highlight. 
But before you do that, could I just clarify right now, you know, outside of protocol setting, do you think that this is sort of a reasonable clinical standard, whether you're using a matinib or the second generation TKIs? Well, many of the studies so far has focused actually on comparison head-to-head in a frontline setting right from the start to imatinib. As you know, dasatinib and nilotinib are approved. Another agent that attempted to do that was bosutinib, and we can talk about that as well. However, this evidence now brings about alternative, not to start with the second-generation TKI, but rather use it for those that do not dwell on imatinib. And the real question was, How do you define those patients that are not going to do as well as others? As you know from the long-term follow-up approval study where imatinib was compared to interferon, after about seven years of follow-up, about 60% of the patients do well. That is maybe good, but not satisfactory. So there are patients that the long-term will not do well. And this is the attempt to identify those that will not do well rather quickly after only three months of imatinib based on the molecular and cytogenetic response. So in an everyday practice, perhaps this is something to consider. I would not say that this is something that is built in the guidelines, and it's not for everyday practice, but certainly monitoring the patients and seeing about their molecular and cytogenetic response early on may help in decision-making to doctors who are in community practice. So maybe you can comment on that paper that you're referring to. I guess it's the Title II trial, 451. That's right. So that was a study which was a single-arm prospective study also for chronic phase CML patients that started with imatinib. And then based on this testing, qPCR, quantitative PCR, to assess their response at 3, 6, and 12 months in terms of how much is there left of the disease, those that did not have a good response, 10% or more of BCR able by qPCR, were then switched over to nilotinib. And although it was a single-arm prospective study, there was a dissociation of the patients along the lines whether they were good molecular responders or not to imatinib, and one can compare their outcome. About one-third of the patients that initially started on imatinib switched over to nilotinib, and they did respond. I mean, there was a response molecularly to an institution of nilotinib. That would indicate that if these studies are repeated in the future and lead to similar experience again, that we may change our guidelines in the near future where we would start patient on imatinib and institute a second-generation TKI within three or six months based on molecular response. How often do you see this early lack of response with the second-generation TKIs, and will you switch somebody there? The response to the second-generation TKI in setting is not as common as with imatinib, of course. However, it does happen, and this was one of the cohorts here in the Title II study where nilotinib was used at a lower dose, 300 milligrams twice a day, and then if there was no good molecular response, the patients were changed to 400 milligrams twice a day with improvement in the results. So I think we are talking about the real dose response. The dose has to be optimized. The dose of nilotinib is now very well established. Whether you modify the dose of a second-generation TKI or switch to another second-generation TKI from nilotinib to dasatinib, or if you start with dasatinib to nilotinib, is an open question. We don't have too much experience on that. We are building here evidence of switching from imatinib to the second-generation TKI 
which is positive in a way that we do benefit the patients. I don't think it's ready for prime time for institution and everyday practice, but we are getting there. In terms of this question of discontinuation of the TKI, we have abstract 603, discontinuation of imatinib, and then abstract 604, discontinuation of desatinib or nilotinib. Can you talk about those two papers? So the question always comes up in the patients that have extraordinarily good response to uh, TKI, either to imatinib or second-generation TKI, whether some of these patients have been cured. And in France, they have done a couple of studies. The first one was in patients on imatinib that had a complete molecular response for at least two years, and this was a study in 100 patients. The therapy was then discontinued. A molecular relapse was seen in about 60% of the patients within the first seven months, but these patients did respond to reinitiation of imatinib. So re-challenge of the patients that lost the molecular response to imatinib led to them responding again. However, about 40% of the patients did not relapse, and they had an excellent molecular response now maintained for a longer period of time, for several years. And using multivariate analysis, the so-called risk score, the duration of imatinib therapy, were two independent prognostic factors for prediction of molecular relapse after imatinib cessation. So perhaps we can utilize this in the everyday practice in the future if we have more experience like that. Certainly this indicates that some patients practically can be cured. Of course, the disease is still present there, perhaps at small levels that we cannot detect it. But patients that have a long exposure to imatinib, have a low-risk disease, have at least two years of complete molecular response, may potentially be taken off the therapy and may not relapse. The 40% maintenance of a complete molecular response after stopping imatinib is rather impressive. The other study was a little bit different. It was in patients who were actually a little bit worse. This is a study where discontinuation was attempted in patients that were on dasatinib or nilotinib in chronic myeloid leukemia that were still in chronic phase. Most of these patients were exposed first to imatinib, almost all of them, and then to the second generation dasatinib because either they were intolerant or resistant. And we're talking about 25 patients. And some of these patients then stopped therapy after having complete molecular response to a second-generation TKI. And again, like in previous study, a number of these patients had maintained long follow-up without a recurrence of the disease, stable, undetectable quantitative PCR, basically complete molecular response. So functionally, after the TKI in some patients, you can achieve a functional cure, if you like, whether we have uh, real tools to assess who will or who will not relapse after such attempt of stopping therapy, it's a real question. It's intriguing. It is not probably something to advertise to be done in everyday community practice, but it's something that is worth further investigation. I want to ask you about a couple other agents where there were data at ASH. First of all, Basutinib, the BILA trial, 455. Basutinib is another TKI that was very active in more advanced cases of chronic myeloid leukemia, and attempt was made to test it in a frontline setting comparing to imatinib. Being a relatively good agent, the chance was that it might be better in terms of toxicity and efficacy. The study was unfortunately negative in its primary endpoint, which was complete cytogenetic response after 12 months of therapy, 
And primary reason was that about a quarter of the patients on bosutinib were taken off the study for toxicity. Toxicity was primarily related to a GI, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, and that led to a failure to achieve the primary endpoint. However, at ASH, the presentation looked at the longer-term follow-up of patients on the two arms, and indeed, bosutinib was able to achieve better molecular, better cytogenetic response in patients than imatinib and less of a progression accelerated in blastic phase. And therefore, it was actually active. The compromise was there just because of early on toxicity, low-grade toxicity related to GI tract. Unfortunately, I'm not sure how this drug is going to be developed further. We lost this opportunity in this study to get it approved. It is good agent, however. The other agent that deserves to be highlighted is ponatinib. Ponatinib is different than other TKIs in that it is also effective against T351I mutation that is very well known to be one mutation that is resistant to all the other TKIs that we have at disposal. And this was a phase two pivotal study in about 450 patients that was presented at ASH looking at the efficacy of ponatinib in the intolerant, resistant patients to TKIs and patients that have a T351I mutation. About 100 patients had that mutation. And across the board, ponatinib was very effective in inducing hematological and cytogenetic responses and even having some molecular responses detected, particularly in patients in chronic phase that are multiple treated and refractory. The average number of therapies that patients were exposed to prior to ponatinib was three. So that was really selected group of patients difficult to treat that had a really good response to ponatinib, and perhaps ponatinib is one agent that we might expect to be approved in the near future. There was also several presentations coming out of the ENIST-ND study looking at nilotinib 452, 606, and 114. Just without going through all that, anything globally that came out of those data that you want to comment on? Well, nilotinib was approved based on NS studies as a frontline therapy for chronic phase CML patients. And these abstracts have uh, confirmed long-term efficacy and safety of nilotinib versus imatinib. And in particular, lower rates of uh, progression of the disease or discontinuation of the therapy than imatinib, which cement, in a way, its utility and choice as a first-line therapy for patients with CML. Alternatively, the other abstract looked at patients that were on imatinib from the beginning and then either continued the imatinib or switched over to nilotinib if they did not have a good quantitative PCR result. And as expected and from our prior discussion, nilotinib improved the outcome of these patients after imatinib. So nilotinib is becoming a very strong player for frontline use instead of imatinib, and of course, one of the major agents to improve the results in patients that have no optimal response to imatinib as a second line. Could you talk a little bit about how you approach the selection of an initial TKI outside a trial setting right now? Well, based on these results, certainly nilotinib having a much better responses, particularly molecular responses, in a very quick fashion, within a few months, versus imatinib, and having an excellent toxicity profile where you compare it to imatinib brings about its use in a frontline setting in majority of the patients. Indeed, I would probably choose nilotinib as a frontline therapy 
because we now have a very good evidence from many different studies that a rapid and deep response is crucial for long-term outcome of the patients. And the second-generation TKIs, and in Latinum in particular, having a good safety profile, appear to be a good choice to start with. What about the choice of nilotinib versus dasatinib? These both are approved as a frontline setting. The differences come to some extent in their toxicity profiles. It seems that, of course, not having a study that compare one to the other head-to-head, nilotinib appears to have a rather decent toxicity profile and especially better than imatinib, both being good, but nilotinib better than imatinib. So having a much more evidence about nilotinib activity in frontline setting and having all these studies now presented, nilotinib comes out as a very viable first choice. The last paper I want to ask you about is 456, again looking at pegylated interferon, but this time in CML along with imatinib. So pegylated interferon we discussed as a therapy for ETNPV. When it's used at the low dose, it's tolerable and effective here. The attempt was made to improve imatinib results by adding another agent to it, rather than changing imatinib in patients that do not do well after three months, like we have discussed with nilotinib. Here, the pegylate interferon was started at the beginning at very low dose of 45 microns per week, and it did improve the results than what you would expect with imatinib alone. It is the biological modifier. It has its own activity. We know that very well. So combination of the two makes sense. What was problematic was a toxicity profile. As we talked before, interferon is not easy to take. It is related to the dose that is used. The investigator noted that 90 micrograms per week was not tolerable enough. They amended the dose to 45 micrograms per week, which is very low dose, and that was much better tolerated. They reported that the dropout rate from use of interferon was pretty high overall, about 70% stopped. So it is a mixed bag here. It is a drug that improves the result of imatinib, but it cannot be tolerated for too long. Many patients had to stop it. One needs to see how best to accommodate this toxicity profile and whether it's worth pursuing this combination for everyday use in general practice. Having all these other studies that we reviewed with nilotinib or second-generation TKI, it is a little bit difficult to see a real role in every practice for interferon in CML.